Hello and welcome to Glitch Cube, we're a gaming podcast, and each week we take a deeper look into the art of video games. And as always, I'm Christian. I'm Chris. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us on another fun and exciting week as we dive through the world of games. This week, we are going to be looking at video game journalism as a whole, how it started, where it's gone, where it's going, and some of the issues that we feel are there and we are not alone with these with these feelings that it seems to be a very common thing about some of the the issues with video game journalism and i'm sure a lot of you will totally agree with us but we will get to that much much later now for video game journalism it has definitely come a long way from the originators right the first magazines and articles written were in the 70s which is insane to think about that's 50 years ago we started writing about video games now they were very different than what we currently have today uh, the game magazines that we have today are full of reviews, articles, interviews, and all those wonderful things. But back in the 70s, they were more for, I would say, consumer styles, right? It was more of synopsis of games to get you to buy them, to get them get you excited. It was less reviews. And they even had these things that were called type-in games. So for those of you who don't know, type-in games, they would actually lay out the code for you. And then you would take that home with you. You would go on your computer, your personal PC there, and you would actually type out line by line these games, the, all the code for it, and you'd be able to play them, which was really cool. It was pretty exciting. And I would not doubt that this is what really inspired a lot of game designers of that day and age to go into coding and to try and work on something of their own because the magazine showed how quote unquote simple it was. Now, there were some issues with the typing games, yes. If there was a bug or the code was written wrong, you would not get any patches <laughs> like we have nowadays. That doesn't exist. Uh, and you would have to wait and hope that in the following month's magazine, they had an update to that code. And if they didn't, well, sorry, that game just didn't work for you. But guess what? There's probably another typing game for you to try out on your own. But before we get too much into the history of video game magazines, I want to ask you, uh, what is your, like, were you a magazine guy? Did you get the subscriptions? Did you read them growing up? Uh, I read a little bit. I was more of a strategy guide reader, even if I didn't have the game, which sounds weird, mm. but I love doing it for some reason. Uh, but what what was your uh, experience with, with magazines and gaming journalism it's not weird at all because i remember going to borders back in the day and i would just go to the game strategy <laughs> section and i would just read strategy guys for games that i probably would end up never playing it's right? so, so fascinating though right like i love you know, seeing the behind the scenes of the puzzles and just learning how video game puzzles worked there was something to that that was really fascinating to me yeah, like I have m very clear memories of going there, looking up the strategy guy for Grandia, because that's what I was playing at the time. And then I saw Castlevania 64 strategy guy, and I was like, wow, look at these 3D graphics. They're so cool. <laughs> like I was like blown away by it. And I was just saying, I'm going to get this game. I'm going to rent it. I'm going to rent it. And I, I never ended up renting it, but it. It was such a time, and I loved it. Like, some strategy guides went to such detail, or they were playful, right? You look mm -hmm. at Earthbound. And, I mean, obviously, that that strategy guide came with the game, right? That's why it was in the big box. And that strategy guide was, like, playful. They made it more of, like, a journal rather mm -hmm. than a strategy guide. So, it, it just felt different. Or, you know, other ones, like you said, they have background information on puzzles or dev commentary. Or concept art. That was my favorite. Yes, the concept art. Or they could be cheap dicks and do like the Final Fantasy IX strategy guide where it's like, if you want to learn more, go to playonline.com. Uh, yeah. 
and you'd go there and it's like clunky as hell and you never get your like it was it was so mean to do that and um i love strategy guides but going back to what you you asked um i was definitely a game magazine kid uh I grew up in Nintendo Power just because my brother was subscribed to it for a while. Mm. Um, and I loved getting it. You know, I for me, Nintendo Power was my first game magazine that I had. And it's interesting because I feel like Nintendo Power, at least pre-2000s, it just felt special. And I'm not saying this because of nostalgia, but it just felt cool like it had you know the multi-page guide for a game right where it's like a map and a lot of exclusive releases and things like that were announced in nintendo power that weren't anywhere else either yeah like i remember back when animal crossing they had images of like this is animal crossing for the n64 in japan only and i'm like oh my god, I need this game. And then it's like comes out on GameCube years later. Like I loved import sections and magazines because it made me want to play games. I remember the N64 DD with Doshin the Giant. And I'm like, I need this thing. And it never comes out. And I forget about it. 20 years later, I'm like, oh man, I still really want to try that out. But it's Nintendo Power was cool because in their review section, they always kind of gave their games like decent reviews. If a game was kind of crappy, their little review box would just be a lot smaller, mm-hmm. right? Like, say Final Fantasy gets this huge pa- one page review, whereas, like, I'm trying to think of a bad, a Back to the Future for the NES, it's like, here's a three sentences, you know, like right. they made it very, they made, they put it in a nice way. Right. They never uh, bashed a game. Yeah. yeah. And obviously because, you know, they, they want to sell games for their console, but it, it just kind of worked. Like it was kind of nice to read and it always just kind of amped you up on games. Even if sometimes you did feel burnt by their decisions because you play it and you're like, this isn't for me, you know, but, that's when I evolved into uh, EGM or Electronic Gaming Monthly for people out there that don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the other magazine I got really into. And I think that was the one I was subscribed to a lot longer. And that kind of introduced me more to actual reviews where there's positives and negatives mm-hmm. and Obviously, it's just beyond Nintendo, so, like, there was a lot more, like, it it was fascinating. I loved it. I loved reading Sean Baby's reviews because he always got handled, like, the really janky bad games, and he would just go to town on it, but in a funny way, right? Like, he wasn't, like... Some of these YouTubers where they're like, this game sucks, like here's why, and they, like, tear it down. But whereas, like, Sean Baby was like, this game sucks because, you know, you you can't do a sick move. Like, it was just stupid fun. Mm-hmm. And I lo- it captured the 90s and early 2000s, like, tude style. Right. And I love that, like, 90s attitude. But it it was cool, you know? Like, it was fascinating learning about all these games that I'll probably never end up playing and it was just I didn't feel like every page was an ad and nowadays I mean I know there's not that many game magazines out there like last time I checked a game informer was mostly ads Mm. and it's it's a bummer you know like I remember growing up with game pro and um bunch of other magazines playstation magazine xbox magazine like it was just it was cool you know you got to learn so much and i'm happy that the internet archive is digitally preserved a good chunk of all those magazines so you can go back and read them which it's nice for my nostalgia yeah, but uh it's actually cool yeah i i love game magazines like they were they were just so cool 
Yeah, it was always fun going through them whenever I had the chance. I always wanted a subscription to them, but it, because we moved around so much as a kid, I just never ended up asking for it. So I would always just pick them up whenever I could or, you know, going to Blockbuster and picking up a magazine real quick while you're before you start browsing for games or movies or whatever it is you're looking for that night. So that was that was a lot of fun. That's for sure. But you you touched on something that was pretty interesting. You mentioned the fact that magazines nowadays and, you know, in the past, there's a lot of ads in them. And that's a very commonplace thing in American journalist or video game journalism, uh, because there really isn't that much money in it, unfortunately. And I think that really stems from the very early days in the 80s when these magazines were first coming out and how they were handled. So whenever you look at a magazine from the United States and you look at one from Europe or Britain or, you know, just that general area, they're very, very different. One will have a lot of ads, whereas one might not have any at all. And you start to wonder, why is that? Well, the writing style in those magazines were completely different during those times as well. And I think this is where we start seeing reviews really uh, becoming a majority part of video game journalism, especially in Europe, like mainly in Europe. So in the 80s, video game magazines in the United States were primarily commercialist or like they were just a lot of this is the game that's coming out go buy it really putting it in a like a basically just like little mini commercials in the magazines themselves reviews weren't really a thing uh video game journalists weren't specifically for video games they were just journalists that happened to be writing about games at that time so they really weren't uh, picking up in popularity it wasn't something that flew off of the newsstands, let's just say. But in Europe, they did something rather interesting with their magazines. Yes, they had a lot of the same content, but what they also added in was reviews and articles written by locals, which was pretty fascinating. So you actually got to hear about games in the language of gamers. And a lot of these writers were very young. So it, uh, from some of the articles that I've read, uh, it's just a lot of kids that would write into these video game magazines and get published, which is pretty fascinating because during that time, the demographic for the magazines was predominantly 16 years old because, you know, it makes sense, right? That's the age of games in the 80s. And now, of course, we are now, those 16-year-olds are now, what, in their... 40s and 50s <laughs> so uh, if they're still reading about games then you know obviously demographic changes and shifts so the the video game journalism needs to evolve with it as well but back then that was really exciting to see uh, to actually be able to hear the lingo and things written in the terminology that you are comfortable with because you are a youth as well now, one of the big issues that came from it is professionalism. Uh, There's a lot of typos and things like that that didn't get corrected, but it was kind of looked over because it felt like you were reading something from your peers. And that was a really big deal, especially back then when games were looked at as a waste of time. So now you're reading a magazine written by peers, knowing that there is someone, if you're in the United States and you're reading a European gaming magazine, you would know that there is someone on the other side of the world that shares your same interest and passion, and you have found a community to really grasp onto. So I think that's where the European magazines really excelled, and that's why they didn't have as many ads in them, because mm. sales for those magazines were actually profitable. Whereas in the United States, they were not making any profit. They would barely break even. So they needed to include more and more ads. But what a lot of people don't realize is that ads can go away. So if they said anything negative or went against what a advertiser was trying to convey with their own personal message, those ads can get pulled now they've lost that revenue and now they can't break even. So the verbiage and the things that were being written about got skewed and molded based on the advertiser's intent. 
So that is why the United States has a very different style of writing when it comes to video game journalism, especially during this time. Right. So it, it's it is very interesting to see that that difference between the two regions and how much like advertisement and, you know, money talks. It makes sense. So it that's like the very, very early days of it. And then eventually we get what is called the Internet. For those of you who don't know what that is, no, just kidding. <laughs> mm. <laughs> that really changed the way video game journalism or was delivered to us in a very profound way. So in the early days of the internet, it was just articles being written online. Now, there was no interaction between reader and uh, writer during that time in the early days, right? We didn't have a way to communicate back to the writer how we were feeling. The only way to do so was to actually write a handwritten letter, send it to the magazine, and hope they read it. And they did a lot, right? But And some mm -hmm. of those letters did actually start changing the way that journalists were writing about things. And this is where things, I feel, start to take a turn. Now, eventually, we do get that ability to react to things immediately by leaving comments on these articles. And that's... I, I don't know. It's it's a kind of a double-edged sword here, right? It is really nice that you get to interact with these writers very, like right away. And the big difference here, why internet was kind of becoming king in video game journalism, was that magazines were coming out once a month, whereas articles online were sometimes daily or even weekly. So it was a very fast-paced writing. And for journalists at that time, that was pretty hard to keep up with. So they were just pumping these things out without fully playing games, without fully understanding what they were writing about. Because once again, they're not devoted video game journalists. A lot of them were just journalists who needed a job. So now that we have this interaction in which commenters are able to kind of scream out loud about the things they got right, what they got wrong, the tone, the thing, like all of these things start slowly morphing and changing based on the commenter's reactions. And it changes how we write about video games. And that's what we see today. So that culmination of being able to write comments on these articles in the early days of the internet have led to how we review games nowadays, where the loudest voice gets the most views, gets the most attention. And the ones who bash the games the most really get the most like like praise for it, right? Like and it's it's an upsetting situation here. At least I, I feel like it's rather upsetting. So and I I kind of wish that video game journalism never went that route of allowing comments to be live on their pages, on these articles. I, I feel like it should just have been treated like a, a professional situation, right? Like you're not posting comments on scientific journals <laughs> on the website, right? Like mm -hmm. you're reading these things and if you wanna talk to the scientists that came up with it, then you write them a letter, you reach out to them. But you're not like saying, oh, you wrote this like a dick, right? Like, no, <laughs> like <laughs> that wasn't the case. So I, I really feel like this was a, a very negative thing to come out of video game journalism and it skewed the way that we look at things i think it it has its pros and cons i think a lot of people or at least websites that you know were in charge of journalists and stuff i think they took the comments to heart and like you said kind of molded their decision it's like it's fine to hear people like criticize maybe your review, but when you start trying to appease people to mm -hmm. keep coming back to your site by giving high reviews to just please people, that's when it's a problem. Mm -hmm. And that's something, especially nowadays, like once we get more towards like where we are, where we're at now with journalism, like it's definitely at that point. But during the time when they started having those write-in letters, it it was interesting because for a long time it was mostly just people like being happy or asking random questions. 
And then later on, you know, the early 2000s, you know, there's more people getting into gaming and stuff like that. You start seeing the people being more critical of reviewers. And the thing is, too, is back then, you know, before, I would say before the 2000s, um, you didn't, it's not like you really knew a reviewer by name, right? Like, like I remember Sean maybe just because he had a special segment in a magazine and, and that stood out. But a lot of those other people's in the review, like maybe if I was older at the time and remembered names like that, I would have been like, oh yeah, I could always trust them for their reviews. Mm-hmm. You don't, nowadays, you know, we know YouTubers by name, right? We know we can go to this YouTuber for whatever we feel they do right right back then you know it was always a rotating list especially if you looked at different magazines to get different ideas and the internet just makes it easier for us to kind of make that stuff stick out and you know a lot of those old reviewers like they don't really do it anymore or they you know, do podcasts or they do something different, you know, it's, it, a lot of them disagree with the new way of journalism. And it's really interesting when you see them get critical of how it's changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's changed quite a bit. And I mean, after the, with the forms and everything like that, and then we start getting things like, number ratings for games which i think is such an obscure idea that really just downplay any review in my mind right like you see these reviewers write stuff that are really really harsh on some games and then they still get like a nine out of ten and it Mm -hmm. just doesn't really make any sense to me and how can you categorize something like i've never really enjoyed that whole like how was your experience one out of five right like it just that that's not a good way of measuring an experience especially with games game like you don't have i mean they do have ratings like that for everything now like when it comes to products and all that but i always find that kind of silly like same thing with like movies and all that as well like a movie can have a terrible score but actually be an enjoyable experience for somebody like me in particular (laughs) there's so many horror movies that get 30 percent and all this stuff and i know my partner she really doesn't like watching movies that get low ratings i don't care Hmm. i i I don't even look at the rating if the movie looks interesting from the trailer i'm going to watch it and it might be enjoyable and there's been plenty of times where i've gotten her to watch a movie without looking up the rating by just putting it on when she's not paying attention <laughs> and then we look at the rating and it's like oh that got like a 3 that's horrible 3 out of 10 and but we both had fun watching it so that's why i some people really take that number system to heart and i i really would like it for people to not Right. Like it sounds hard, but like I feel like that's something that we definitely need to break out of is break out of that number system. I think I think with a lot of YouTubers, at least all the ones I watch, they've kind of broken away from a number system. It's interesting when you see the big sites still use it. Mm -hmm. It I think back in the day the number system kind of made more sense. But after listening to Giant Bomb for years and how they criticized IGN and GameSpot's numbering system where they basically admitted, like, yeah, like, there's some behind-the-scenes stuff that goes into the point system. and Like if they want to ever play a Nintendo game again? Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting because I always think back, um, I was listening to Jeff Gerstmann and he actually got fired from GameSpot because he gave Kanan Lynch a very low score Hmm. when all these other people gave it high scores, right? And, you know, that's the other side of it is that if you are too honest in your review, you could get in trouble and possibly lose your job like he did. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the scary thing too, is that 
you should be able to be critical of a game if it deserves it. Right. And a lot of these websites, you know, they're getting paid. This is AAA games, right? Like indie games, this is different. But when it comes to games from big companies, a lot of them get kickbacks for talking good about their game. And, I mean, that wasn't the only game that that's happened to. I mean, there's been multiple times throughout the years where someone will give a low rating to a game. They're cut. They're Mm -hmm. gone. And, you know, those are the people I try to seek out sometimes because it means they stand out. They're different. And because you can go and they're giving in any magazine. Yeah. yeah. And that's why, like, for me nowadays, I try, if I want game reviews, like, I try to go to people that have been in the industry for more than a decade or two. Um, and it, I may not always agree with some of their views, but, like, the people I watch, it's like, I like the honesty in it. And, you know, it's not like, well, I got this game for free, so I'm going to talk about how good it is. Like, it's it's refreshing when you watch someone that's, like, honest about that kind of stuff. But when it came to magazines, you know, it's... You didn't think about it back then, that, you know, they got those games for free. So, of course, like it's easy for them to talk good of a game that they didn't spend any money on. Right. But it's the number system. It's, it's never really been beneficial because how I look at it is that. There's just so many assets, especially when it comes to games, right? With movies, I can see that where, it makes sense because there's not enough things to grade in a movie. Mm-hmm. Whereas a video game, you know, you have your graphics, your stability, your voice acting, you have so many things. And it's like giving points to each section. It, I don't know. It's just never been good for me. The only thing I really take points seriously is Yelp, right? When I'm going to food, <laughs> yeah. that's the only time sure. I'm checking reviews or if I'm buying something from Amazon, I'm checking reviews. Other than that, I have my select people I go to for games, and I listen to what they say. Most of the time, my mind's already made up before I listen to what they say, but it helps me decide if I want it right away or not. Mm-hmm. And I think that's helped a lot. Uh, I have friends that will see reviews and will instantly buy a game if it's got good reviews and i see them get burned all the time and i'm like you know yeah and it's a bummer but it's something i meant to bring this up earlier but there's always something in reviews that always kind of annoyed me uh especially with non-platform specific magazines mm-hmm. or even YouTube channels. When a game is multi-platform, right? And a part of the review score is based on the performance of the game. And it always comes down to the Switch usually having bad performance. It's kind of dumb to give a game that's multi-platform a lower score for performance if it's just for the Switch. That's true. Because if it runs good on PlayStation and Xbox, it shouldn't get marked down. You know, if you're reviewing specifically the Switch game, then, you know, yes, give it a lower score for that reason. But if you're doing a multi-platform game, just bring it up like, oh, on the Switch, it doesn't run too well. Mm -hmm. Leave it at that. I see so many games get buggered on because of that. I'm just like... You know, it's not really the Switch's fault. It can't, it's not powerful. So, I don't know. Reviews are just... <laughs> the old format is slowly going away. And it's, I think, maybe for the better, yeah. honestly. You know, so many people look at Metacritic and it's just, it's almost poisoned the masses, <laughs> I feel like, because... You know, there's obviously the two scores with Metacritic, right? There's the critics and then there's the players. Mm -hmm. And 
the players, I mean, after seeing a lot of, especially this year, I think this year made itself very apparent how people can bot the user stuff or review bomb things on it. Same with Steam. That when it comes to player reviews or criticism, kind of going back to what you said about people mailing stuff in, <laughs> it makes it very hard to take that, like, people like that very seriously yeah. because the only background they have for the most part, unless they state it is just playing games. So right. if you have Marky Mark playing a Mario game, but he's leaving a review for doom. Obviously he's probably not going to like it if he was expecting a platformer, so you're just going to see a bad review for him being a dumbass. And right. that's that's the problem with giving kind of like a, a free reign for everybody to leave their comments. I'm not saying get rid of player responses like on Metacritic, but I think people maybe shouldn't take that stuff so seriously like there's some people that leave really good reviews on metacritic for like players but it gets washed out by all the people saying game bad he he right. you know it's and with critics on there obviously points matter like a lot of games i'll read like developers and stuff that they live for those high scores on Metacritic because that means their game's going to do good. And if you have something under like an 85, a lot of people look at their game as failed mm -hmm. or under 80. And it's sad because there's a good amount of games in the 70s, maybe even late 60s that I've played that are really good. But you know people aren't playing them because they see those the medium most, numbers. Yeah. And that's the problem with the score-based stuff is that there's a lot of good games out there that either don't even get reviewed or the points are low. And I think another problem is that a lot of these new games come out and they need a patch. If they don't get patched right away the review is going to reflect on this broken game and a month from then or a few months when it gets fixed, are those people going to fix the reviews? Mm -hmm. You know, Nine obviously with like, yeah, yeah. Like we look at no man's sky and obviously that's changed all around and all the reviews have been fixed because it's been re-released so much, but a lot of older games that got fixed, you look back at them and they're just remembered for being broken, even though they work now. And I don't know. It's kind of a bummer. Yeah, it's it's a real shame. And you really hit the nail on the head there when you brought up the fact that, you know, somebody could be writing a review for Doom whenever they want to play a platformer. That's what their main interest is. Or even mm -hmm. they're writing reviews. And this could be actual video game journalists as well, writing for articles. And these are could be the quote unquote critics that are writing reviews that don't really know the ins and outs of the game design process itself. And I think that's a really important aspect to learn, especially if you are going to be writing about this stuff. You need to know how long it takes to actually fix something. You need to know how much work goes into that one little puzzle that pissed you off and now all of a sudden it has a two out of 10, right? Like you need to know how many people and how many hands it went through to get to this final product that you are now able to play and enjoy. So it's, I think that's so crucial to just have a, even just a basic understanding because I've seen it so many times that people really, really bash on a game for it being delayed. But if it's being delayed for the right reasons, then that's totally fine. That makes complete sense. But if it's being delayed because they're, you know, they want the next console and all that crap, then that's problems, right? So, like, that, that, that's where we really need to lay down some groundwork. And I, I would... It would be great for reviewers to actually do a little bit of homework, to actually talk to developers, to reach out to them, to read what they have to say, to watch their interviews, to see what problems they went through in order to make this game happen. 
because it could even be non-game things. It could be just life hitting them hard where the game was a lot more difficult, or it could be a really small team of just one or two people trying to put out a huge game, which is not easy to do. Like that's damn near impossible, but it happens often. And then a lot of times those games get bashed, even though like the amount of work that went into that is astronomical. And that's one of the things I really enjoy looking at is uh, game company sizes, especially for indie games. Hmm. Because if you look at like, oh, this game doesn't look that great, but the story is fantastic, right? Or vice versa. The game looks amazing, but there's not much content going on. Well, if it's a team of like five people, then yeah, some stuff's got to go. But if they're able to at least release the intent, the original like intent of the designers, then I'd say that's a win. I say that they did something pretty amazing and it's going to be entertaining for someone. So I think it's you should never really look at a game negatively because a lot of work went behind it. And like if you have a triple A game, if you're comparing an indie game to a triple A game, especially if you're a writer, then you're doing it wrong because the company sizes are insanely different, right? Like how many people worked on God of War? probably upwards of 300 people plus. And then you look at Fez, how many people worked on Fez? One or two, (laughs) right? Like, Mm -hmm. so, but they're both fantastic games in their lanes, right? So I think that is a very important thing to look at whenever we're looking at games and how they're being made and things like that. But that requires doing extra homework on the side if you actually want to write about these things. And I think that's where a lot of people really don't what they don't do, especially journalists as well. Like even big name journalists in these magazines for Metacritic, for all these things, they're not doing that extra homework of seeing the amount of workload that went into something, because I feel like that really needs to be appreciated. And like it's like looking at a piece of artwork. If you look at a piece of artwork and think, holy crap, that took them 10 years to make like that is so amazing the perseverance the things like right but if you look at a video game and go oh my god it took them 10 years to make it what the hell were they doing and then you realize oh shit it was a team of two okay that makes sense right whereas like if it was a team of three to five hundred then it's okay what delays happened like what money didn't get put through what what what's the story there like there's a story there that needs to be like thought about whenever you're writing about this review of the game so I I don't know. I, I feel like there's a lot of designer intent that needs to be thought about whenever we're writing about things. And I think that's where things need to change. And like we've had a conversation about this on how reviews should be done or how we think they should be done. Like we're not saying that there's a blanket statement of a right or wrong way, but maybe a a better way for different types of consumers and looking at things from just paying attention to the main story and the gameplay, the mechanics, right? The designer's intent. And then looking at, do the mechanics mesh with the game or with the story itself and the message that's trying to be conveyed? If the gameplay takes away from that message, then I would say designer's intent was not met. Now, is that a negative thing? No, but it's something that needs to be accounted for and paid attention to by the consumers that are going to be purchasing this. If they're looking for a very fast-paced story and this game is boasting that it has a very energetic, action-packed story, but then you get thrown into turn-based combat, you're going to be disappointed. But And maybe the game designers need to start thinking about how they're trying to balance their games. And if we write reviews or articles about games in that way of actually looking at designers' intent and did the message come across clearly rather than giving it a one or a 10 or whatever it may be, then I think that game designers as a whole will look at that very differently and pay more attention to the message and actually put put, put in place the tool necessary to have the message being conveyed properly and to make sure that the gameplay never takes away from the core story that's trying to be told. I think... Another thing, too, and this is something I feel like older reviews had, and obviously there's groups out there nowadays, too, but 
a lot of times reviewers nowadays, they may enjoy different genres, but sometimes they'll play a game that they don't like. Right. Kind of going back to what I said about the Mario and the Doom thing is that, you know, someone could like JRPGs, but then hate like a hack and slash game, but they're forced to review it because it's their job, right. right? Like at the bigger chain. Or if they do fighting games and they're forced to review like an RTS. It's like, ooh, <laughs> that's a yeah, big like, jump. That's the problem is that either they're going to talk about how much they did not have fun with it, or they're going to just say, it's a great game and try to pretend like they enjoyed it, even though they don't like those games and just give it like a blanket, like review yeah, um, something really generic that's why for me like i've tried to spread out my like sources for different genres that way like i kind of have a trusted opinion on different ones because i used to see that a lot where like you would watch like a certain thing and it's like oh yeah this game wasn't that great but then you look at their other games and they're boasting about all these other games that are different genre. Other people like that game that they bashed. So it's like, for me, that's something that has really stuck out with reviews is that it makes it tough when the person doesn't enjoy that genre and they have to review it. Cause then you just don't get an honest take on it. And which is kind of like you're saying tough, too though. with yeah like a background and stuff i think something i'm noticing a lot more people are doing i like how i say a lot because there's probably not a whole lot it's just because i the algorithm pushes all of it to my face but <laughs> right. video essays and retrospectives have become such a breath of fresh air when it comes to reviews that I think it's now my preferred way about learning a game because for me, yeah, getting a quick review of how a game is, is great, right? We want to know if it's at least kind of worth our time. Mm -hmm. But if I really want to understand the game and granted, you probably have to skim through the video so you don't get spoilers, but it's, you know, I love retrospectives because you don't really get a review of a game. You just learn about a game. And this is more so for older games, right? Like, you don't really see this for most modern games unless they're a YouTuber that specializes in picking out moral themes or mm -hmm. mechanics in a modern game. Which, you know, I love those kind of videos. I wish there were more of them. But I understand why there's not, because one, not a lot of people like to take a philosophical look at games, and two, it's it's hard. I, I've thought about wanting to do stuff like that, and it's surprisingly pretty difficult to create a long-form essay on a deeper meaning behind some games. But at the same time, for me, those are so enjoyable because you you really see games for a different light mm -hmm. you you see them as art you see them as something more than just a a thing to waste your time on you know you i i love even watching retrospectives of games that I have no interest in because they're on an older platform it's fascinating learning about these games and a lot of people they can skirt around talking bad about a game by saying like oh this kind of plays like this other game so if you don't like that you might not like this but they don't ever bash a game mm -hmm. it's more so like this is what you get when you play this mm, that's it they leave it at that and i think i honestly really like that but i could see why you know creating that kind of content quickly for reviews it'd be hard and i get it like writing reviews for games you know they get crunched like i i knew someone that did game reviews for a while for a website and 
yeah, it's a crunch. You have to play like five, six games a week and you have to think about it. Like if you want to leave a good review, you usually have to play a game for five, ten hours, depending the kind of game. Mm-hmm. So you're just stretched thin. That's why, you know, for a long time they were crunched so much there wasn't enough like there weren't enough people out there to review, so you got one dude reviewing six games and this is burnout, you know? I mean, it's not like people have all the time in their life to devote to just playing, right? A lot of these people are not getting paid a lot of money to do that. You know, if you're a YouTuber and that's your job, then, I mean, then, yeah, you could sit there and do these all day. But that's another thing, too, is that a lot of these journalists just get burnt out, and right. you can kind of read in the reviews sometimes, depending where you look. Yeah, it's it's a tough it's a tough like gig out there, right? To be a video game journalist, it's like I mean, if you're looking at just November and December of this year, uh, 2022, like how many games are coming out and how to stay relevant with every single one? And if you are one of a team of five reviewers for a magazine, like you got a lot to do, you have a lot of work to do. And so I get it why they might stick to just the number system because it's easier. It's easier to quantify little minute things and just pump out reviews. Whereas doing an essay on a game and each game that comes out, that's a lot of work. That's a lot to ask for. And it's not really feasible. And I get that, right? Like it makes sense. I mean, I would love for reviews to change to the essay format as well. It just makes much more sense because you're learning about the game and you're actually learning. Like I like those retrospectives because you learn about the company too during that time frame. Mm-hmm. You learn about what was going on in that, like that year or five years that this game was being made. So that's actually really fascinating stuff. But doing that for every single game that comes out or doing it for some of these games that are just nothing games, right? Like, can you really write a video game essay on rounds or genital jousting, right? Like, (laughs) you can't really write video game essays for everything. So that's why I understand that that's probably not a feasible way of doing it. But I think just removing a lot of the negative remarks in reviews is essential and i think it's really important to do so and to look at it more in a critical standpoint but you need to have an understanding of game development in order to be critical about things in that way to be beneficial for game designers too because they're reading those reviews so if they just read a review that says game sucks haha right like that's not helpful why did it suck for you? And like, go into a little bit more in depth on the mechanic side, on the gameplay, the story, the music, the art, right? Like, what was it exactly that that game designer can now take and learn from? Because a lot of game designers now are also not trained in game design, which is a weird thing to say, right? With the way that we are able to now make games easily with Unity Unreal being free to everybody and you can publish your games on Steam, Itch.io, anywhere for almost free, right? Like you can make a game for free just if you're willing to put the work into it. Like you also need to know how to make games. And if you're getting a critical review that is actually helpful or trying to give you pointers and you're able to take constructive criticism, you can then become a better game designer from that as well. And that's the point of reviews is to make games better in the future. So I think it's it's a tough it's a tough thing to look at. And I am hopeful for the future, but I already know how the future of game or video game journalism is going to look like or what it's going to look like, it's going to be more of the same crap because all of the reviewers are now YouTubers and Twitch streamers and whoever yells the loudest gets the most views. And that's unfortunate. Like, it's just, it is what it is, right? But if you're willing to do the homework, there are people out there that are putting in the work who are writing honest things about video games who are trying to elevate the world of video game journalism as a whole. 
And we need to praise these people. We need to give them our views, our feedback to just show that, hey, the work you're doing is seen, it's appreciated, and please keep doing it because you never know what game dev might actually be looking at that and might actually learn something that they didn't even think about. And so that we can just keep boosting everybody up. That's the point, right? So, yeah, I, I'm hopeful, but we'll see. <laughs> and maybe, maybe me and Chris can do something about that. <laughs> maybe me and Chris yeah. can help this message along. And because if you really look at it, like I, we totally understand how hard it is to go really in depth in some games, like across this whole channel, every episode that we've done, we've only done what four deep dives into games yeah so it's it's a lot of work it's it really is because you have to dedicate time to play them and write about them and really think about them in a critical light but so we actually are looking at ways to help the video game journalism and trying to figure out a way in which we can put out quote unquote reviews not i don't want to say reviews there has to be a better word for it but to at least maybe give everyone a different option, right? You don't have to go to the number system. You can learn about these games. We can dive into them in a different way and look at the designer's intent and look at them critically and hopefully have a conversation, a critical conversation with the developers themselves. And who knows, that might be coming pretty soon here. So be on the lookout for that. It's gonna be pretty exciting. Something that we've been wanting to work on for quite a while. And I think it is right around the corner for us. But anyway, I think with that, that's gonna do it for us this week. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening in and we'll catch you all next week. But until then, goodbye for now. Thank you.